0: this gospel. We have been slowing down through a portion of this. This evening, we're going to step up the pace a little bit because I don't want to lose the context. And this is the big thing. I would have slowed down and take it in little chunks. But I don't want to lose the context. So we're going to cover the first 36 verses of this passage here tonight. So for you no takers you're going to be incredibly happy. For those of you that are not no takers let me recommend that you become no takers It's going to make it a little bit easier to go through this. But we begin this. Here in John chapter 7, we've understood that Jesus has fed the 5,000. They wanted to make him king. He left that. He told them really what it was that they shouldn't take him on this temporary basis for this temporary filling that he was come from heaven to do the eternal. And he was telling them how they had to receive fully his work, his death, the brutal death that he would die on the cross eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. They would leave him, then he would ask his disciples, Are you two going to leave? And, of course, Peter makes that incredible statement. He said, Lord, where are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. What has happened was this. In John chapter 5, prior to that, we recognize that chapter opens up. There was a feast of the Jews. We understood that that feast is the Passover. So what we're recognizing is from John chapter 5, to here in John chapter 7, there's going to be approximately six months that have transpired. We understand that because here in John 7 verses 1 and 2, after these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Understand that the Feast of the... Passover is there in the first month, the Feast of the Tabernacles is there in the seventh month. I want to give you just two references so that you can understand that. In Leviticus chapter 4, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall claim appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month, it is at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So we understand on the 14th day of the first month, it's the Passover Passover. In Leviticus 23, verse 33 and 34, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. On the 15th day of the seventh month, there shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So understand, the first month, 14th day of the Passover, seventh month, we begin to see here that you're looking at, you know, um, on the 15th day, then you're looking at this is going to be a feast for seven days. It makes this declaration, Leviticus 23, verses 40 through 43. Let me just share this with you. He says, And you shall make for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And you will keep it as a feast of the Lord for seven days. In the year, and it shall be a statute forever for your generation, and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So in other words, temporary dwellings. And this is what we see here. That there in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles is unique. It is a little bit different. I want to share with you just one portion of Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament there in the book of Zechariah chapter 14. It's unique because this is one of the feasts that will actually be happening during the millennium. But there in Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King of the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be on them there will be no rain. So God is making this feast something important. And within this feast, if you do not come during the millennium, there's going to be no rain. And that's going to be important as we we go through this. Keep in mind that within this feast, there's an amazing word that Jesus does as far as the refreshing, as far as in a sense, the rain type of a thing. We're in John seven thirty seven On the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood crying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. So we understand that this is a feast of the water. On the seventh day, the priest would go and they would pour out water upon the, um, the, 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 the floor of where the Temple Mount was. And it was one of those things about, you know, telling him this is the refreshing of the Lord. But this is the feast of the tabernacles. And this is that feast that's going to last for seven days. But I do want to share and I want to back up for just a moment now that you understand the timeline of what it is because we do know that, you know, there in John 5 it talks about there was a feast of the Jews. We discussed that being the Passover. Six months have come and have, you know, passed now and now there's this work But within that work, and keep in mind that there during the Passover, that's when Jesus healed the one man who was laying there at the pool. And in John chapter 7, verse 1, it says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. So he continues to be up in the northern part of Israel. As he stays in the northern part of Galilee, it says, for he did not want to walk in Judea, For the Jews sought to kill him. This is an important thing to note. Now within this chapter, chapter 7, there's going to be a specific flow about the leaders wanting to kill Jesus Christ. Here it begins openly in the first verse that says the Jews sought to kill him. If you go a little further into this chapter in verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Moses, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered, said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Well, in verse 25, he makes this statement. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? So those in, from the Galilee area, they didn't think, you know, who's trying to kill you? Those from the Jews of Jerusalem, they kind of heard about it. This not here whom they seek to kill. In verse 32, it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. It goes on in verse 44. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. We understand that there was the reality there in John chapter 5, and let me just read one portion of that to you in John 5, 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. This is what's happening now. Jesus didn't want, he continued to walk through Judea. He began to continue to walk through the area of Galilee because he knew that there down south in Jerusalem, the leaders wanted to kill him. Now, I do want to share this, you know, to you because understand that Jesus doesn't not go to Jerusalem because he's a coward. He doesn't come go because a coward. He doesn't go because he's afraid. What happens is this. In verse 6, there's a very specific thing that Jesus begins to open up here in John 7, verse 6. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. That Jesus is aware of the Father's perfect timing for his life. And he is also aware that what the leadership of the Jews is wanting to do is to take him to the cross. Well, he's going to go to the cross Not my will, but your will be done. But it's going to be in the timing that the Father has prescribed. Not the timing that the religious leaders want to do. Everything had to be according to the time. Jesus did not have to be the Lamb of the Tabernacle feast. He had to be the Passover Lamb. And so because of that, he couldn't be crucified here during the the Tabernacle. He had to be crucified He had to be slain during the Passover. So understand that what we're seeing here in verse 1 is a core, a foundational truth that's going to go throughout this chapter. So follow with me as we go through because the key to this is the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus. And of course it is the Feast of the Tabernacles there in verse 2, but Jesus is not the tabernacle lamb he's the Passover lamb and so he's going to be the lamb of the Passover now in verse 3 his brothers said to him depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing It's interesting that most scholars, well, I won't say most scholars, but there is a debate among scholars. We'll put it that way. The debate is this, are his brothers, and these are true brothers, there's not a lot of debate about that. Are his brothers, the brothers of Jesus, are they being facetious? Are they sort of mocking him? not believing in who he was? Because verse 5, it said what? Even his brothers did not believe in him. So are they, in a sense, mocking him, saying, well, if you really are the Christ, and go and do a bunch of miracles. Wow, the people. Why don't you go to Jerusalem where the crowds are being gathered? Do your thing. Let them see you. Let them see your works. Are they mocking him? Are they, are they jibing him into going? And there's another aspect that maybe they are sincere. And I don't know which one it is. I just don't know. All I know is what they said. The doesn't, Bible doesn't say their intent. It does say in verse 5 that they didn't believe in him. But it doesn't say that, that they weren't beginning to or there weren't questions that they had. And if he went and proclaimed himself openly, revealing his glory there in Jerusalem, they could say, well, we, we could come alongside of that. But they said... You know, they said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, apparently, they weren't around when we were reading John six sixty six, 66. And, and that passage said, from that time on, his disciples went back and walked with him no more. He didn't have a lot of disciples anymore. He had the 12. He told the 12, you also want to go away. So at this point, what we're seeing here is they're saying, listen, why don't you, you know, so that your disciples may see your works. That was the problem. The disciples wanted to see signs. They wanted a temporary fix to all the outward issues. Jesus came to be the eternal fix. If they really wanted to see a sign, Jesus is going to show them his glory. But it's not going to be doing miracles there in Jerusalem. It's going to be going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. That's going to be the glory of God. That's where his glory was manifested. But they're wanting to see these little things all the way as they, they played out. So, so understand that where we're seeing is that they're saying, go back. Go in in Jerusalem and wow them. Because you know what? You just lost like 5,000 men plus women and children. If you do some things in Jerusalem, you can get back a bunch of people. Let, you know, let's try to recoup some numbers here, Jesus. You just lost a bunch of them by claiming you got to eat of your flesh and drink of your blood. Wow them again. Make some more bread. Get a bunch of people on your side. Well, it's interesting They go on to say in verse 4, for no one does anything in secret. No one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you really want the world to know that you are the Christ and show them, wow them, why are you doing these things in secret, why you're only doing them to a few, go and do this to the world. Let the world know who you are. And we understand what? The one thing that he does publicly for the whole world is there upon the cross. If I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. This is where the work is public. This is where everyone would know who Jesus was and what Jesus did. They would make that proclamation there, put it on the sign. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. They would know who he was. They would know why he was dying. That was his crime. He was king. And so we recognize here, they make that statement, says no one does anything, verse 4, in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. And so we we recognize, go, show your glory, reveal your glory, let everyone see your glory. Verse 5, it makes that statement, for even his brothers did not believe him. It's one of those things where they had said, you know, we want your disciples, your disciples, but we are not part of your disciples. It's interesting. I want to share with you a passage. David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, and I want to read to you just one psalm, Psalm 69, verse 8. It makes this statement. David said this, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Even his family would reject him. And so as David would speak that prophetically about Jesus, he said, yep, I've become a stranger to my brothers. They don't know who I am. Well, verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. So when Jesus makes this statement, he says, my time has not yet come. That word time is unique. If you're a note taker, just jot this down. Jot Galatians 6.10 down. In Galatians 6.10, the exact same word is used but it's it's used in a different way. It's actually used in a more correct way in the English language. In Galatians 6, 10, it says this, therefore, as we have opportunity, that's the same word. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. When Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come, he's saying the opportunity, the precise opportunity, time the opportune time isn't yet and so that's what he's making to say when he says my time has not yet come it means the proper time or the opportune time his opportunity has not yet come the time to reveal his glory through the crucifixion this is not now and so when jesus said in verse six my time has not yet come but your time is always ready it's amazing that Jesus is saying, my life is on a calendar, is on a timeline. In other words, when the Father speaks to me, then I do it. I'm, I'm literally at the, under the will of the Father in heaven when he says that I do it. And really what he's saying to this is, <laughs> you guys aren't under that will of God. You go any You're you're literally not so clued into God that you follow his leading moment by moment. That's what I am. He says, now, so I can't go. But he says, your time's always ready. You you have no worry being outside of the will of God as far as his timing for your life. Just go when you're ready. I can't. And so he makes this statement now, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. They're not seeking to kill you. You can go. I have a timeline of when I'm supposed to die. This is not it. And so the world hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. And so this is here where Jesus had been speaking, where he continues to draw their hearts back to what he's been saying as far as where the people are. And how the people hate him. He makes a statement in John 15 verse 19. He says this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. This is another one of those things where in verse 5 it said the brothers did not believe in him. Because they did not believe in him, they're what? They're still of the world. And so we recognize, he says, the world cannot hate you. The world loves its own. But it hates me because I'm not of the world. And, And what we see here is this. I testify of it that its works are evil. Now he says this in verse 8, you go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. Again, a little bit better understanding where the opportunity is not exactly where the father has depicted. I cannot go to die yet. And so when he had said these things, verse 9, to them, he remained in Galilee. So, They go on down to Jerusalem for the feast for seven days. Jesus remains up in Galilee. And then verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So he didn't go with the masses, he didn't go with the crowds, he didn't go so the crowds would see him coming, and there would be a crowd very similar to his triumphal entry where they were saying, oh, here comes the king. He wasn't doing that, but he came, in a sense, not openly, but he came with his disciples, but he came not seeking out crowds, but to, you know, in a sense, secretly, And that's what it says there in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up after they left, then eventually Jesus does go up to the feast, but he doesn't go with crowds. He goes by himself with his disciples, so they call it in secret. Verse 11, when the Jews sought him at the feast, and they said, where is he? Now understand, the Jews aren't the Jews as The population, we've already talked about when it says the Jews like this, they're talking about the religious leaders. The religious leaders are still pursuing Jesus Christ. They're still wanting to take him. And so, verse 11, when the Jews sought him at the feast, they said, where is he? Remember, we've already read verse 32. Of John 7 where it said the chief priests and officers to take him they do want to take him they do want to kill him they do want to get rid of him well they couldn't find him so when they sought him at the feast they said where is he and there was much complaining among the people concerning him some said he's good and others said no on the contrary he deceives people it's amazing that what we're seeing here is there's no one who's neutral in this passage. I-, I want you to see that. One says he's good. The other says he's bad. One says he's right on. The other one says he's absolutely wrong. One of them said he's good. The other one says, no, he's a liar. One says, he's got to be the guy. And this is, no, he can't be the guy. Do you understand? No one is neutral. And I find this this so interesting that we see here that that Jesus has, so often we think of the Lord as he's the one who's going to come and bring peace. Isn't that true? That's our, our, our thought process. I mean, you know, there in, in Isaiah 9, he's what? He's the prince of peace. When he was born, the angels there in Luke 2, they were saying what? Peace on earth. It's, it's always been about that peace. And yet, uh, amazingly, even Jesus in John 14 would say, you know, my peace I give to you. I'm going to bring peace. But yet there's a couple of things that I want you to be aware of. The first is found in in Matthew chapter 10. And I want to read to you just a couple of verses. I want to read from verses 32 through 39. But I'm going to focus on verse 34 for just a moment as we go through this. In Matthew 10, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I'll also confess them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny Before my Father who's in heaven. Do not think, verse 34, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, does this sound like the Jesus you and I think? No, he's the Prince of Peace. How did he say, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword? Well, the the, the truth is found right here in, in what we're learning in John 7. They said, no, one group said he's good. The other said, no, he's not good. There's a division that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's amazing that when you become a born-again Christian, when you become one who is saved, in other words, that you've given your heart completely over to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that you know that you know that you're going to heaven, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and you aren't just aware of God and aware of his word, but you have an intimate relationship with this God, and directed by his word. His word becomes power in your life. When that happens. We who are born again. We who are saved. We who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not just knowing about him. But receiving him fully into our lives. And those who only know about him. And haven't fully received him into their life. In other words. That Jesus to them Is a savior. I want fire insurance, but he's not a Lord. It's not someone that you walk to and you receive and you believe in. It's what can I do to glorify you? And I think this is what so happens is that message of Jesus Christ. It is going to divide. Remember now, Jesus had a great multitude of disciples, and he said, what? You've got to receive, fully be committed to, internalize my death. This has to be your life. This has to be your life source. If you don't, you have no life. If you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have life. If you don't, you don't. And what happened? They all walked away. And then he went to the 12th. I mean, you, you think about this. He had thousands, and now he's down to twelve. Do you also want to go? Do my words offend you? No, your words are life to me. Do you understand how they divide? And this is what Jesus is saying. I'm telling you it's about me confessing me. You confess me, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me, in other words, then deny me that authority, deny that, that my death is your life, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Verse 34 of Matthew 10, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, my message is to divide. But my ultimate goal is what? Peace to all who come. I've come to give peace with, so that when you receive me, you have peace with God. When you receive me, you have peace with men. I will bring peace on earth to those who've received me. But when you don't receive me, there's a division that comes and I've come to bring a sword. I've come to split it in two. There is no middle ground. Do you understand that if you have a sword and you cut something in two, you have two halves. You don't have something in the middle. It's just two. And Jesus came to divide. And amazingly, he said, Verse 35, I come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You understand he's saying you have to come and you have to take up a cross. Amazingly, he's saying you have to take up a cross. You have to die to self, and then your life is now to draw others to the Father. In other words, do your works in such a way that what? When they see them, they glorify your Father in heaven. This is the key to scriptures. And this is here what Jesus is trying to teach. There's another passage there in the gospel of Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read from verses 49 through 56, but I'm going to focus on verse 51 again. And then in Luke 12, 49, it makes this statement. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Whoa, talk about the prince of peace. This is like Boadrenes on steroids. This is like, hey, let's just send fire down. And Jesus, listen, I came to send fire. Fire destroys what? It destroys wood, hay, and stubble. But what does fire do to gold, silver, precious stones? It purifies I've come, I want that which is false to be burned up, and I want that which is pure to be purified. And I love what Jesus does. He said, I've come to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. In other words, I have to go. I have to go, and I've got to go to the cross. Now, verse 51, do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. Do you understand now he's asking, do you think I came to send peace? That's what the angel said, right? Peace on earth. (laughs) That's what Isaiah said. You're the prince of peace. You said, my peace I give to you. Yes, I thought that's what you meant. Suppose, do you suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, he said, on the earth, while I'm still here, with the message that I am declaring, it brings division. And understand, the the message of the truth of the gospel, being born again, being saved, being right with Jesus Christ, telling people that I know that I know that I am going to heaven, John had said, hey, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. I, I love God, and, and 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 he's touched my heart that I begin to love people. This is his work, and I think it's so important, and he says, do you suppose I came to bring peace on the earth, Luke 12, 51? I tell you, not at all, but division. I came to bring division, for from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother-in-law, against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And when he said this to the multitudes, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately say a shower's coming and so it is. When you see the south wind blow, you say, oh, there will be hot weather. And there it is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it you cannot discern this time? I'm here. Life is now. The message is here. You need to accept the message or deny the message. He comes and sets before you what? Life or death. not limbo. There are only two choices, life or death. There's a division. You have to choose where it is. I think it's so important that what we begin to see here is he says, you've got to understand that there is going to be this division. He said, you can see things in the weather. You can see things when you look on earth. You can discern the face of the sky. You can discern the face of the earth. You can kind of know what's coming Know what's coming spiritually. I'm here now. And I'm either going to be received or rejected. There's going to be no middle ground. And I think this this verse 12 is just so important to note and to gravitate to and really what the concept that he's trying to speak in this portion is. He says, listen, some say he's good. Others say, absolutely not. He's a deceiver of the people. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 16. I want to read from verses 13 to 18, just so that you can kind of understand what this key is, where Jesus talks about the peace is coming from and where there is a division. Verse 13 of Matthew 16 Going to 18, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Isn't that what brings the division? Who do you say that Jesus is? Oh, he's a good teacher. All right, close. You're right, but you're, you're, you're way, way down here. He's way up there. He's a prophet. Oh, Good. Good, you're still right, but you're still way down here. See, until you come to the point that he's God, and that he came, God came to die for my sins, and my only access is through receiving that it's not my goodness, but only his blood that can make me right with God. That in and of myself, that there is no righteousness of me, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. And and as we look to this, I think it's important to see that, that here he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And this is where division comes in. It's one of those things where this is one of those taboo conversations that you are not to have during Thanksgiving. And one of those taboo conversations you are not to have during Christmas. As a matter of fact, they, they were even speaking to this. Well, of course, a few years ago, you shouldn't have spoke of Trump either. But, but these were things that divide in a household. They just cause just this absolute division. But he said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven. You are the Christ. You are the one who was from old, from everlasting, and you came to earth, and you literally would humble yourself to become a man, you would die for our sins, and through you we would have access to God. And it's amazing that that what Jesus has done is he's only done good. Remember that, he's only done good. And so when when verse 12 here of John 7, there was so much complaining among the people concerning him. There was a division no one could, everyone couldn't get on the same page. Some said he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives. It's amazing that there are some people who look that way to the Bible. Some people say, you know what, this whole book is good. And others say, oh, no, 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 it isn't good because it's outdated. When, when, when God talks about that there should be a marriage between man and woman, that's outdated. That's outdated. No, it's good, it's right, it's holy, it's perfect. Do you understand? When when, when God talks about that I created life in the womb, that there in the womb I know you, I'm forming you, I'm knitting you, before you were even in the womb I knew of you, you're a person then before you're conceived, and while you're conceived you're a person, you're growing. And the, the world says, no, this is too outdated, and God says, No, it's truth. Do you understand how it divides? But this is what the Word of God does. And so, instantly, some say He's good, others say He deceives. Some people say the Scripture is good in its entirety. Every verse is good. When it points out my sin, it's good so I can repent and turn from it. When it points out the way I should walk, it's good. It's all light. And what scripture does says this, turn from darkness, walk towards the light. That's what it does, and it is good. Scripture doesn't say remain in the darkness. It says leave the darkness, walk towards the light. However, verse 13, no one spoke openly of him for the fear of the Jews. So when the people had these discussions, they were there in whispers. Whispers. They were afraid of the religious leaders being kicked out of the synagogues. They didn't want that to happen. So no one had public discourses. Discourses, they were all private. They were whispers. They were in hushed tones. He's got to be good. No, no, no. I know he deceives people. So you don't want the, the religious leaders hearing your conversation. You don't want them to think you're thinking Jesus is good. Surely he has to be the Christ that you don't want getting out. Now it says in verse 14, we're we're noting now this is a seven-day feast. We've talked about that from Leviticus 23. So verse 14, now about the middle of the feast. So you're a few days in. Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, as we see this, I want you to understand that when it says in verse 15, the Jews marveled. It's not the people. Remember now, the Jews are the religious leaders. They're scratching their yarmulkes, and they're thinking, now, I can't tell you that what he's saying is heresy because what he's saying is true, but I can tell you this, that he hasn't been trained properly. So what I can do this, although I can't fault what he's saying, I can fault who he is because he didn't go through the proper channels. He didn't go through the school of the rabbis. He didn't go through, so you look to that, and they say, "Well, well, if you haven't gone to the right seminary, if you don't have a a you know a bachelor's, or you don't have a, a master's, or you don't have a doctorate in theology, then you're not qualified to teach." And to be honest with you, there would be a lot of churches that I would not be qualified to teach in. It doesn't make a difference that I taught through the Bible twice. Every verse, every chapter, it doesn't make a difference that I could talk to you about every passage in the Bible accurately as far as it all pointing to Christ. That means nothing because I wasn't trained. Now, I went to a Bible college before it was Bible college. We called it the school of ministry. That's, That's what I did. So when it comes to the theologians, I went to grade school. That's as far as I got. I graduated grade school in the biblical knowledge, and that's as far as I got. But they would look and say, you know what? What you're saying is true. You know, we've heard your studies. You go long, of course. You should knock it down to 15, 20 minutes. That would be you know, digestible. But what you're saying is true. And yet you haven't gone through the proper channels. This is what they're saying of Jesus. Saying, how does this man know letters? How does this man know letters? I I, want to give you just my thought on how this man knows letter. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And it says the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How does this man know letters? This man is letters. This man is the one who spoke And Moses would, after he broke the Ten Commandments, write them down again. Everything that was spoken, it would be of this man. And and amazingly, Jesus has always been one in which they would marvel. Jesus has always been one that literally goes beyond what other men saw as authority. Remember there in Matthew chapter 5? I want to read just a couple of verses to you. I want to start reading verse 21 and verse 22, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And then in verse 22, Jesus, but I say to you, who's ever angry without a cause has already, you know, committed murder in his heart. Jesus says in verse 27 and verse 28, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman that lust has already committed adultery. In verse 31 and 32, he says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give his token. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Do you understand the authority in which he speaks in verse 33 and verse 34, he says, again, I, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, verse 34, you shall not swear at all. He has this authority. Verse 38 and verse 39, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Verse 43 and 44, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I said, you love your enemies. Do you understand the authority which he spoke of? You guys think you know you got traditions, but I'm telling you what the really heart of God is. And they were amazed that how does this man know letters? How does he have a clue? It's beautiful because eventually in the book of Acts, when it comes to Peter and the guys there in Acts 4.13, it makes a statement. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled, they realized that they'd been with Jesus. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, what an incredible, incredible thing to put on your resume. Not that I've been in this school or not that I've been to that school, but I've been with Jesus. And I'll tell you that when it comes to the messages that are here, if you say, wow, you know, Lowell said this and Lowell said that, and, you know, he quoted from here and he quoted from there, would really be cool to say, you know what? Lowell must have spent a lot of time with Jesus because I'm seeing his fragrance, sensing his fragrance everywhere in this passage. And and I love the fact that he goes, how does this man know letters never having studied? Well, he's the word, get over it. He, he, he's the one that gave everything to Moses he's the one that spoke all these things well in verse 16 Jesus answered and said my doctrine's not mine but he who sent me <laughs> I'm only saying what the father gave me to say of course it's absolute truth now he says this in verse 17 if anyone wills to do his will He shall know concerning this doctrine, whether it is of God, whether I speak of my own authority. So he says, and and note this, if anyone wills to do the Father's will, what is he saying? If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Remember in John 6, verse 29, there's a beautiful passage in which Jesus is speaking, and, and Jesus answered when they said, what? shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. When when he says, if anyone wills to do his will, if you believe in me, he's saying, you're gonna know concerning this doctrine, whether it is from God or whether it's not. You believe in me as God has proclaimed, you're gonna have eternal life. If you don't, you're not. And so it's absolutely amazing that as Jesus is speaking these things, he says now in verse 18, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Now I want you to understand what Jesus is declaring of himself and then what he's going to declare of those who want to put him to death. Look at verse 18 and 19 in their context. As Jesus is saying, listen, I've come to do the will of the Father. That's what I'm doing. Verse 16, the doctrine's not mine. But in verse 18 and 19, he says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. In other words, if you're not declaring the heart of the Father, which is believe in me, he says, you're saying, I have a new way to get to God. Look to me in my glory, my wisdom, my ability to get you to heaven. Which is why he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. It's not the glory of God. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. Now now, now this is it. When you're seeking the glory of God that Jesus said, who sent me, then it's true. And no unrighteousness is in him. He's saying, I have no sin. When he's declaring these words and everything he's been declaring, everything he's been doing, at the very end of verse 18, he says, no unrighteousness is in him. He's saying, I have no sin. Now, notice what he says in verse 18. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, now, now this is incredible. Because when, when, when Jesus is saying, listen... What are you guys doing? Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now now think about this. They have all broken the law. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 19. None of you keeps the law. But isn't that amazing where if none of them keeps the law, where there in Romans is what? The wages of sin is death. This is where the heart is. In Ezekiel chapter 18, two verses I want to read to you. I want to read to you verse 4 and verse 20. They basically say the same thing, but Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. He says in verse 20, The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor The father bear the guilt of the son, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And he's saying right here, understand, verse 19, did Moses give you, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. There's a passage in Galatians 2.16, I just want to read it to you. It makes a statement, knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, but by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The soul that sins shall die. So understand what Jesus is saying in verse 18 and 19. I'm going to back it up to verse 19 so you can really understand what he's saying. He said, didn't Moses give you the law yet? None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He said, you are all deserving of death. Do you understand? You've all broken the law. None of you keeps the law. So guess what your reward is? The wages of sin is death. You all deserve to die. You all deserve death. And yet you want to kill me. The one that he says in verse 18, there's no unrighteousness in him. You understand, he's saying, you guys who deserve to die, you want to kill me who doesn't deserve to die. I've been perfect. I've not sinned. You've sinned. You deserve to die. Isn't it amazing that these people who deserve death, Jesus came to say, I've come to give you life. Jesus, who is life, they're saying, I want to give you death. Absolutely incredible to see what Jesus here is speaking to the people now, verse 20, the people answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, you know as well as I do, John five sixteen. for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They were already plotting to kill him six months earlier there at the Passover. They haven't changed their mind. Verse 11, they're still looking for him and they're looking to take him. Now, we begin to see the people who weren't aware of what the Jews were planning, they're saying, wait a second, you have a demon, who's seeking to kill you? They aren't aware of the religious leaders. Well, Jesus, in verse 21, answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel." Now, he's speaking of the work that was there in John chapter 5, there on the Passover, the, the one work that the religious leader said, wow, we got to put this guy to death for this work. And so when we understand why that was happening, remember John five sixteen. for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things. He healed the man on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is trying to give them an understanding. Verse 21, I did one work and you all marvel. Verse 22, Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but it's from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath... So the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Now, when Jesus is talking about this whole thing about the circumcision, there is a passage in Leviticus 12.3 that makes this statement. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So he simply says, listen, when you have a male child and he shall be, you know, she shall be unclean 7 days in the days of her customary impurity on the 8th day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So you have this male child circumcised on the 8th day. Now if the 8th day happens to be on the Sabbath. What happens? we got to keep the law of Moses it has to be on the eighth day so if you do that on the eighth day you're not shunned you're not disciplined in fact you're praised yeah you're right you're keeping the law the sabbath is a lesser law the circumcision is a greater law. keep that law and it's okay if that one law of making this doing the circumcision falls on the sabbath Do the circumcision. That's all Jesus is saying. A man receives circumcision, verse 23 of John 7, on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well? You understand that there's there's higher laws. If your donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath, do you not take him out? Yes, you get to do that. There's a man who needs to be made well, and I do that. And I love what what Jesus does. He says, so don't don't judge according to appearance, but you got to judge with righteous judgment. So now in verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now they knew that the Jews were plotting to kill him. And they're saying, isn't this whom they seek to kill? Isn't this the guy that they want to destroy? But look, verse 26, he speaks openly, boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? So now they're like, well, if they're not taking him away, maybe they changed their mind. Maybe they do believe that he is the Christ. Verse 27, they said, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. They say, we know where he's from. Of course we know where he's from. Now, now, now keep in mind that there was that understanding where they do believe that they had that knowledge. There in John 19, 19. Remember the sign? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. They already say, well, well, isn't, isn't he from Nazareth? Isn't his father Joseph, his mother Mary? Don't we see his brothers, his mothers? We know where this man is from. But it says this. When the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And let me tell you that they're very bad in their understanding of theology. They don't know. Jesus has actually said where he was from. I I want to share with you two passages. The first is found in in the book of, of Micah. And there in the book of Micah, chapter five verse two, it makes a statement, "But you Bethlehem Ephrathath, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one-to-be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old from everlasting." Now, this isn't saying that he comes from Bethlehem. This is saying that he comes forth from old, from everlasting. He comes from heaven into Bethlehem." That's what he's saying. And, and I don't know if you were with us when we were there. In John chapter 6, verse 41, the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. It's absolutely amazing. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. He said where he was from. I'm from old, from everlasting. This is where I am from. And they said, when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. Yes, you do. He's from heaven. And it's absolutely amazing that verse 28, when Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me, and you know where I'm from. I've not come of myself, but you sent me is true, and you and him you do not know. It's absolutely amazing that we said, Jesus said, you you know me, you know where I'm from. I'm telling you, I'm from heaven. I'm the bread which came down from heaven. He said, and I, I... You have to understand that he who sent me is true. Do you know what that means when it says he who sent me? I was there. He sent me here. (laughs) He's telling them of his deity. He's telling them of where he's from. And he's saying, listen, I didn't come of myself. I didn't just, just, just pop into existence by myself. I was sent here. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. If you can't receive me, you don't fully understand him. Verse 29, Jesus says, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. He's speaking of, no one knows where the Christ is from. Micah 5, too, he's from old, from everlasting. He comes to Bethlehem, but he is from heaven, has always been. Well, at that point, verse 30 Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet fully come. So we see here that they wanted to take him, but yet the the father did not allow him because Jesus's time to go to the cross was not yet. But it didn't mean that they didn't have a desire, didn't mean that they still wanted it, just means that they were thwarted. They sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? So they're asking this, is there anyone who could be more Christ than Jesus? And you think about that. Go into the Old Testament and everything that they say was the Christ was the Christ. I mean, think about if you were looking to get into a job. And they were saying, what? These are the job requirements. Look at all the history. What is the requirements of the Messiah? Well, you have to be God. (laughs) Well, that's going to alleviate a whole lot of people, isn't it? Unless you have the one who was God, comes to earth, and is born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, comes and then dies on the cross. It's actually amazing That here, they said, when the Christ comes, verse 31, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Do you know any person that can fulfill more prophecies than the person of Jesus Christ? There's an amazing book. Um, Peter Stonier has written a book, and in it he talks about the odds of someone fulfilling four of the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled and he said "And this is the odds of them fulfilling four and this is what it would take and so he goes through the numbers and then he says and this is what it would be if you fulfill 10 of them and what would be the odds of someone fulfilling 10 and, and then he says and yet Jesus has fulfilled over 200 and he was talking about the odds of what it would be for someone to fulfill 200 over 200 of the prophecies that Jesus did. And he made a statement. He said, in order to figure out the odds of this, what you would have to do is this, is you would have to fill the universe with electrons. The universe with electrons. And then you would have to begin to wander the universe. And eventually you would reach down and pick up one electron. And the, the odds of that being the one, now you're, you're talking about, Literally 1 times 10 to the 23rd power. This is 1 with 23 zeros behind it. I don't know if there's actually a number that we can call it that. But it's just so huge to recognize that if I picked up one electron, that would be the odds of one person fulfilling the 230 that Jesus did. No one can do this. And that I love the heart. When the Christ comes, will he do more science than this man? Who else has fulfilled the prophecies speaking of the Christ? And who else will come back and fulfill the rest of them? It's only in Jesus. So verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. You need to get this guy out of here. When Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I shall go to him who sent me. They're saying, wait a second, you're going to be out of here? Where are you going to go? And he says, you're going to seek me, verse 34, and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This is brutal. He said, I'm going to go to a place where you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me for where I am, you cannot come? You know where Jesus is? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is where he is. Do you know who can come? Only those who have been born again. Only those who have been saved. Only those who have a living, breathing, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you have a relationship with him, you have a relationship with the Father. Anyone who does not come through the work of Jesus Christ, you cannot come. Do you understand? That's a division. It's not that you get part way. He doesn't say, that. no, you cannot come. The door is closed. You can knock and knock. I do not know you. And I think it's important to recognize that here Jesus is so sp- specific in saying that There is one truth, only the truth that I am declaring. You either receive my truth or you have no truth. There is division here. And I think it's so important to recognize that, that what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, unless you turn around and you get right, you do not have access. And amazingly, I love the fact that he's not there candy coating things. He's not saying, well, you know, you're, you're getting close. No, he's, you're, you're just lost. You're lost until you're found. And I love the, the, the reality and the, the, the discipline and the heart that Jesus speaks. He's never wishy-washy. He's just honest. And I'll tell you what, there's light. Every time he speaks, there's light. And you can either walk in that light or you can reject that light. But every word that he speaks is light, it is life, and it is something that we walk in, that we live in. Amen? Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this word, so grateful for your heart. Only you, Jesus, would speak these truths with such power. And, And yet, you desire that no man should perish but it all should come to repentance. These words were not spoken in anger. These words are spoken in the sense pleading, Turn from your ways. May we be those who understand these words and we don't compromise these, compromise these words. That Jesus, you are life and only in you is life. That you are true and only in you is true. And all the things that you speak in your word, it isn't about maybe doing it it's about literally being obedient in these things and actually doing it and so teach us teach us what it is to be your disciples teach us what it is to understand your heart and to tell people of the truth help us to plant seeds Help us to water the seeds that have been planted. But, Father, we're not the one who brings division. Help us not with our attitude bring division and bring angst, but help us with our attitude to bring love, but to bring truth. And your truth will, will divide itself. And so when the truth offends, let, let, let your truth offend. But if we offend, Father, forgive us, because we do not want to offend. It's not us. It, it's your word. But help us to speak it clearly and boldly, sincerely in the power of the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.